You may be seated. All right, if you would, go ahead and find a Bible. If you brought one, great. If you need to grab one in the pew in front of you, that's wonderful as well. Uh, make your way to 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning. So it's in the Old Testament. We are continuing our summer study of these two very interesting Old Testament prophets named Elijah and Elisha. We're kind of going to finish up with Elijah and then move into Elisha starting next week. Now, as you make your way turning there, I want us to take a moment and talk about a very important and also a very timely subject this morning, the Golden State Warriors. (laughs) For those of you that are Golden State fans, I don't think you could have asked for any better storyline than the one that is unfolding right now. Now, I know some of you don't watch basketball, so let me just kind of give you a, a quick glimpse into what's happened. One year ago, the things looked very, very bleak for the Golden State Warriors as they watched the evil nemesis, the LeBron James-led Cavaliers, celebrate there at Oracle Arena a championship. At that time, it looked like the Warriors may kind of just fade off into the sunset, a very good team that couldn't quite cut it when it mattered most. But now, this year, things look a little different. Again, they are ahead three games to one in the NBA Finals, but this time they come with new power, right? In the form of a seven-footer named Kevin Durant. Praise God for Kevin Durant. We are thankful for him. The storyline of redemption couldn't be set out any more perfectly for Golden State fans because this Monday night they have a chance to do what they couldn't do last year, and that is hoist up the championship trophy with the confetti and for all of us to be able to plan a parade together. That is how the story should end, right? That's how we love for stories to end. We crave those kind of endings of redemption, up and downs, but ultimately with satisfactory endings. And friends, that's how you would expect the story to end that we ended on last week with Elijah. If you were here, you will recall that Elijah had just been part of one of the most memorable battles in Scripture. Not between two armies, but instead this was a battle between God and Baal there at Mount Carmel. It didn't look good for God in this story leading up to this battle. In many ways, it looked like the odds were stacked against him. Ahab and Jezebel were a very evil king and queen that came into the throne in Israel, and they had ushered in a movement of religious pluralism. Instead of serving the one true God, they had encouraged Israel to worship a number of the pagan bells and gods and Asherah and all these gods of the surrounding cultures. The people of Israel had started to sway, whereas they had once been worshipers of the true God. Now they were kind of in both worlds, a little bit of worship here and a little bit of worship there with these new gods of the land. Well, lest you think that God was caught off guard by this and In this moment, he had raised up for him a new instrument, a new instrument of his purpose, this man named Elijah. And in essence, what we talked about last week was that Elijah uh, pretty much went and rented out the enemy's home court, if we're using basketball terms. Mount Carmel, what was known during that day as the, the Mountain of Baal. He says, let's meet at Mount Carmel, you and all your prophets. So 450 prophets of Baal show up, and they're against Elijah and Elijah alone. Well, I'm not going to go into the details of that battle. I would encourage you, if you weren't here, go listen to that sermon on our website. But in essence, what happens is God delivers an epic victory. 
Whereas all the prophets are doing all these different things to get Baal to act, he doesn't do anything. But when Elijah simply prays, God sends fire and it literally sucks up the, the offering that had been placed there. It sucks up everything around it. It was an epic, epic victory. Imagine what that moment must have been like for Elijah. The crowd around him is literally chanting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. You can picture confetti, you can can picture Elijah with his hands in the air, driving off into the sunset forever to revel in this great victory. That's what you would expect. But friends, that's not what happens as you move into chapter 19. You see, the Bible is full of surprises. Um, A better way of saying that may be this, the Bible is full of real life, not fairy tales. In Elijah's case, his greatest high there at Mount Carmel is followed by his greatest low. You're going to see this in chapter 19. That may seem odd, but can we at least acknowledge that many times that's the same reality that happens in our lives? Some spiritual high, some spiritual moment where we are tight with God, where we've seen his presence, where we've seen his power, is all of a sudden followed by a tremendous spiritual valley or a tremendous low. We're at the peak and all of a sudden a temptation shows up that we thought was long behind us. Or we're, we're going and doing things for the Lord. We're living for the Lord and all of a sudden there's an unexpected event that happens in our life that seems to make no sense. A hard time hits and we're left wondering, God, what could you be doing in this? And we get despondent, we get fearful, we move into despair. This has been my experience many times. From the mountaintop to the valley within a matter of hours or even days. And friends, this was the experience of Jesus. I mean, if you look at the beginning of his, the Gospels, what you'll find is that there's one climactic moment, the moment of his baptism. And as he's being baptized, which was the beginning of his public ministry, the heavens open up and God declares, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. What a tremendous high. But what is that followed with? God leads Jesus into the wilderness where for 40 days and 40 nights he has no food and he is constantly tempted by Satan himself. I would imagine that like me, like Jesus, you've experienced this from the mountaintop to the valley. You're left wondering, God, did I miss something? God, did I do something wrong? Are you even there? That's the experience that is portrayed in chapter 19. What does it mean when godly people are suddenly thrust into a spiritual crisis, what in Elijah's case could only be called a severe form of depression? Anxiety, fear, full of sadness. Now I realize this morning that even that word depression is a very loaded word because there are many different kinds and levels of of depression. And my goal this morning is not to diagnose depression. But instead, I want us to look at what brought Elijah to this very low point after having such an amazing moment with God. And then how does God restore Elijah in the midst of it? In order to understand why Elijah gets to this point, we have to remember how the last chapter ended in chapter 17. Right after God had defeated Baal, what did he do? He sent rain. For three years, the people of Israel had been praying for rain. They had been waiting for rain. And after this great victory that showed that I am the only God, God says, here is what I've promised. Here here is rain. Where Elijah gets excited about this, in the very last verse, it says this. It says, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, why would Elijah, 
Elijah run to Jezreel? I think the most convincing argument is that in this moment, Elijah fully expected a revolution. Jezreel was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so if there was going to be anywhere a revolution was going to begin, it was there. Elijah expected that after seeing this great display by God, the people who saw it would would go and would begin tearing down the altars of the false gods around them. He expected for Ahab, who had just seen what God had done, to repent for him to tell Jezebel and for her to repent, or at the very least for them to be kicked out of the throne. No doubt he could have expected a hero's welcome, the, the lone voice for God in the chorus of liars and false gods in their culture. No doubt Elijah expected God to do mighty things that day as he ran to Jezreel. But instead, what happens? Look at verse 1 in chapter 19. It says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, there was no revolution. There was no great spiritual awakening or change of leadership. Jezebel still ruled the kingdom and false gods were still officially sanctioned. Elijah, for his part in this whole deal, didn't even get a plaque, right? Instead, he gets a death sentence. All the expectations he had about what God would do, and these were good, godly expectations. He thought, this is the moment Israel turns back to their God. He comes in with these expectations, and yet none of them materialize. God was doing something different. And for whatever reason, this was the moment that broke our prophet Elijah. Whereas he had been faithful during the three years of drought, whereas he had courageously taken on the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, here, when he hears Jezebel's threat, he listens not to God, but to her. And what does he do? He begins to run. If you would, read with me in verse 3. It says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I think it's safe this morning to say that this is a low point for our friend Elijah. What he hoped would happen, what he expected to happen, did not happen. And because of that, all of a sudden he goes into the depths of despair, so much so that he says, I prefer death to life. God, take me away. I want you to notice something significant that the text says. Uh, there's no part of the text that's not that important to this story, but it says that he left his servant in Beersheba. Now, in that day, if you had a servant... Most of the time it meant you were wealthy, right? That you were rich. But that's not the case with Elijah. Elijah didn't have a servant because he was rich. He had a servant because he was a prophet. And so for him to say, you stay here, I'm going away, what is, what is he saying? He's saying, I am through with the ministry. I'm through. I can't do it anymore. 
I've been obedient. I've done what you've called me to do, and yet nothing's happened. I'm, I'm a failure. I've wasted my life. I am done. I would rather die. Now, in a room this size, I do think it's important to, to just note this, that even in the midst of Elijah's great despair, even at his lowest point, he does not presume that he has the right to kill himself. I know that there are likely some of you in this room that at some point have entertained thoughts of taking your own life, of suicide. And you need to see that as despondent as he is, he does not assume he has the right to take his own life. But instead, he's just saying, God, I trust you even in this. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. I, I can't do anything. I've, I've, I'm a waste. Would you take me now? This is the point of utter despair. Perhaps some of you are even at that place this morning. I've been praying for you this week. Because I want you to see that even in his lowest point, God has a plan to bring Elijah back. To bring him back, to restore him. And that's what we're going to see in this text. It starts in verse 5. It says this, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, as we consider what unfolds here, I want you to see that God in his infinite wisdom has a restoration plan for Elijah that is all-encompassing. And I might add this, it is way better than anything that the world offers those who, who are distraught or sad or are finding themselves in a place of despair. He does three things in Elijah's life. And I want you, if you're taking notes to write these down, I don't think they're going to be on the screen this morning. But the first thing he does in Elijah's life is this. God restores Elijah physically. He restores Elijah physically. The very first thing you see in this text is that he sends an angel. But what does the angel do? Does the angel show up and say, Fear not, Elijah. I bring you good tidings. No. Does the angel come to Elijah and say, Elijah, what are you doing? Repent, get up. No, he doesn't do that, does he? No, in this situation, the angel simply comes to him, and the angel of the Lord places his hand on Elijah, and he gives him what? Food and drink, and he says, rest. Rest. Have you ever noticed how simple that is? He comes to an Elijah and he he gives him physical provision in this moment. He says, take a moment to rest. Now, I think that's really neat because it tells us this. It tells us that God is a lot different than some Christians who, who come across people who are in despair. There are many Christians that when they see somebody that is struggling or really sad or in a very low spiritual point, they automatically assume that it's only a spiritual problem. Many of you have heard people or maybe we've been those people that come to someone that's in the utter grasp of despair and we say well you must be sinning somewhere what sin have you not confessed of maybe you're not praying enough you're you're not reading your bible enough we have a troubleshooting list have you confessed these things have you thanked god for these things have you done this have you done that we assume it's only a spiritual problem 
But God doesn't do that with Elijah. God designed Elijah. He knows that he has a physical nature and that he needed in this moment physical rest. You probably didn't expect to get this this morning when you came in, but sometimes what you need most is not another sermon. Sometimes what you need most is not another hour of prayer. Sometimes what you need most is a nap. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe a run on the beach. Maybe a trip to your favorite restaurant. A time with people that you love. Something that rejuvenates you physically. Sometimes that's what we need most. I'll never forget when one of my mentors first gave me that permission. I was sitting in seminary. I was in the middle of finals. We were busy at church doing a lot of things. And we're in a staff meeting. And the entire time I was doing what some of you do on Sunday mornings. I was doing this. Whole meeting. Afterward, he pulled me aside. I thought he was going to be angry with me. He said, Ryan, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is rest. I've always taken that with me from that moment on. Sometimes physical rest is the response that God has called us to take. This is why he gave us the Sabbath. For many of us, we do not trust God enough to put our work aside. Let's just be honest. Some of us need to confess that. We don't trust that God can do with the limited time that we offer if we take that rest, if we sleep those eight hours, or if we take that nap. We don't believe that God can work enough. We need to do it. And so we never rest. God sees this in Elijah, and he restores him physically. But he doesn't stop there. It wasn't just a physical problem. What do we see? God also restores Elijah relationally. You see, there's two ways that this comes about in the text. The first is that this angel of the Lord, what does he do as he comes to Elijah? He says he lays his hand on him. He physically lays his hand on Elijah. What is that a picture of? He's saying to Elijah in this moment, at your lowest point, you are not alone. When we come to these places of of a low point, of a valley, where unexpected life circumstances happen, sometimes we feel alone. We think no one's around, not even God himself. And God reminds Elijah, you are not alone. But here's what I love. Right after this, he goes to Mount Horeb. He he uses the physical strength to get Mount Horeb. And what does God do right when he gets there? He looks at Elijah and twice he says this, Elijah, why are you here? Why are you here? Now, why would God ask Elijah that question? It's an important question. He's God. He knows why Elijah is there, so why would he ask? Some people look at this text and they say, well, this is a rebuke from God. It's as if God is an angry father that that is being annoyed, and he's like, why are you here, Elijah? In essence, get back out. That doesn't line up with anything else that we see in this text. Now, you see, when God asks a question in Scripture, it's never because he needs understanding. Do you know that? When God asks questions, it's not because he needs understanding. It's because we need understanding. And he knows that we will best find understanding when we press process all of our thoughts and our emotions and our circumstances in his presence. When we do so in prayer, when we bring those things to him. The Psalms are filled with people venting to God. We talked about that in our Psalm series at the beginning of this year. To be godly does not mean that we act like we don't have emotions, right? Now, do some of our emotions need to be corrected? Absolutely. Some of our emotions are not legitimate, but the only way you're going to find that out is to bring those out to God and to see that they're not legitimate. 
The more you hold on to them or ignore them, the worse off you're going to be. And so God asked Elijah in this moment, why are you here? Why? Because Elijah needed to say it out loud. He needed to bring that into the presence of God. Many of you, in the same way that you need to trust God and take a step of physical rest this summer, in the same way you need to also take the time to say, God, I'm going to bring all of my thoughts, all of my feelings, all of my emotions into your presence. I'm going to process them in light of who you are. That's what Elijah finds in this text. He processes these things before God. The other thing that I would say about this, and this is not a point in the text this morning, but I think it's important, is that you should also try to process that with other godly people in your lives. So many of us are like Elijah. We leave our one friend, right? He leaves the servant in Beersheba to go off by himself. And many of the times when trials come, that's exactly what we do. Instead of coming close to our biblical community that God's given us, our community groups, our church family, trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we do? We push them away. It's a tragic mistake. God restores him physically and he restores him relationally. But again, that's not it. He does a third thing in his life. He restores him spiritually. Now, I'm going to talk about this one in a moment. But I want you to see that the way that God restores Elijah is by taking a three-pronged approach. He does all three of these things. Sadly, most people in our culture, when they find someone who is despairing or sad or depressed, what do they do? They treat it as one problem. Instead of looking at all three, the relational, the spiritual, and the, the physical, they say it's only one thing. A lot of people will say this is a physical problem. In essence, their worldview says that it's only biology. There's no spirit. So what you need is a physical solution. Here's a pill, and you're going to be okay. Or exercise more, and then you're going to be okay. They say this is only a physical problem, and here's your physical solution. Others, on the other hand, treat it just as a spiritual problem. Instead of looking at the physical or the relational, they say, well, you just need to read your Bible more. You just need to pray more. We talked about that here just a second ago. These are people who would never take a pill because they say, well, that's not real. The spiritual is the only thing there is. Third, there are people that reduce everything to the psychological. They say if you're depressed, well, what you need to do is you just need to talk it out. You need a counselor. You need a therapist. You need to dig up all your family history and how that's messed with you. It's all psychological, so you find a psychological solution. Friends, what I want you to see is that when you reduce a person's problem only to the physical, only to the spiritual, or only to the psychological, you will never help that person because you're ignoring the complexity of reality. When God comes to Elijah, he does not ignore any of these three areas. He restores him in each of these three areas. He knows that we need all of these things and that all of these things can only ultimately be found in him by trusting him, by walking with him. They are all gifts of God. So how does God then restore Elijah spiritually? He does so through his word. He comes to Elijah and he says, you don't just need drink and a jar of water. You don't just need to speak all your emotions and feelings out. He says, you need my voice. Now that I've given you physical rest, now that you've spoken, you ultimately need to hear what I have to say. Come into my presence. And that's what we read about in the remainder of this story. Look at verse 11. It says this, And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be your prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Bel, and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right, so what is this about? Well, it's first a very important detail. The location of this encounter with God is where? It's called Mount Horeb. Now, does anybody know the other name for Mount Horeb? Anybody? Sinai. Yes, well done. Mount Sinai. If you read the beginning of the Bible and the book of Exodus and all these places, you're going to find that Mount Sinai has an unbelievable significance. It is the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's the place where God established his covenantal relationship with Israel. It is on Mount Sinai that the people met with God. When that happened, when God descended upon Mount Sinai, how did he come? He came in thunder and earthquakes. Previously, he had led Israel, how? By fire. God was in the thunder. God was in the earthquakes. God was in the fire. Elijah knew those stories. He knew that on that very mountain, that's how God had come to the people. And yet, in his situation, what happens? God's not in the earthquakes. God's not in the thunder. He's not in the fire. Instead, He's in a low whisper. He comes to him in a way that he did not expect. Now, why is that important? Because it reminds us, church family, that God's voice in our lives doesn't always come in the ways we expect it to, but that does not mean he's not speaking. Just because God is not working like you think he should be working in your life doesn't mean he's not at work. And that's what he needed to understand. Elijah, more than anything else, had built up a very good expectation, but it wasn't God's plan. The reason he was in despair is because he had this expectation what was his that was not God's. And he needed to see that his perspective was very limited. He needed God's voice into his situation. And that's what he gets. You look at verses 15 through 18. He reveals to Elijah that he has a greater plan than anything Elijah could have imagined. God reveals to him that he's working in a king Elijah had never heard of, this Hazael, to bring judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. If that were not enough, he was raising up another prophet named Elisha who would have twice the power that he would have. And if that were not enough, he says, oh, and I've got 7,000 secret agents that you know nothing about. People that have not 
bowed the, the knee to Baal. You see, Elijah, like we often do, put God in a box. He believed that God had to work in one way. And yet when God's word comes, it reveals to Elijah that his box was severely limited. That he didn't understand. You see, in Elijah's mind, he had both truths and he had things that were false going on. He had some truths. I mean, you look at what he says when he's crying out his heart to God. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, but the people have forsaken your covenant. Both of those things are absolutely true, right? He was very jealous for the Lord. He was in despair because because God wasn't being worshipped in Israel. This wasn't a bad thing. The people had gotten rid of the covenant with their God, but he follows it with a statement that's very untrue. What does he say? And I, even I only, am left. You see, this is our problem. We have truths in our head, but all of a sudden it gets mixed up with lies, and we come to very wrong conclusions. That happens oftentimes when we're depressed, when we're down, when we we don't have the perspective that we need. These truths that are in our head get mixed up, and we come to these dangerous conclusions, conclusions like this, there's no hope for my situation. Or maybe there's this conclusion that you've come to, I can never change. It's never going to get any better. False. There's no one who cares about me. False. He had these false conclusions all mixed in with these truths. And so what does God's word do? It comes in and it fights for Elijah. God's word comes in and it says, these things that you have said are not true. You are not alone. There are 7,000 others. And even more than that, I've got a greater plan here. I'm going to raise up another prophet. And ultimately, I am preparing the way for Jesus who will come and fix this mess once and for all. Your plan is limited. Mine is not. And he needs God's word to understand that because his own circumstances seem to point otherwise. J.D. Greer, another pastor, he says it this way. He says, in our lowest moments, your depressed self is whispering false conclusions to you but it's imperative that you stop listening to them and instead fill your mind with the truth of God's word. We desperately need to fill our mind with scripture. At Mount Horeb, God's word was fighting for Elijah. And I'm telling you this morning, the more that you read it, the more that you meditate on it, the more that you take God's word to heart, not just with your head, but with your heart, God's word will fight for you as well. In those moments that you feel, I am absolutely unloved, the gospel says otherwise. It points to Jesus on the cross. And it says, you are utterly loved, so much so that I sent my own son to come and die as a sacrifice for your sins. When we feel like there's no hope, that we don't have a future, that there's no certain joy in our future, the resurrection speaks otherwise. When we feel like we're alone, the Holy Spirit at work speaks otherwise. God's word fights for us. He says to Elijah, you may in this moment feel like a waste, like a failure, but I am working, and I have a plan greater than you can imagine. He restores him spiritually through his word. So we see these three things. He restores him with food and water physically. He restores him through prayer relationally, and then he restores him spiritually through his word. And I love at the very end what happens. He restores them, and then what does he do? He kicks them back out, right? God sends Elijah back out. 
In verse 15, the story concludes with God telling Elijah, get back to the business of being a prophet. Go back to living out the word of God. Go back out to raising up leaders. Go out and do what I've called you to do. As we close this morning, no matter how tired you may be, no matter how low you may be right now spiritually, you can be sure of one thing. If you are here and you are still alive, God is not done with you yet. He desires to restore you. He desires to send you back out. He desires to send you back out to live out your calling as a husband or a wife or a parent or a worker or an employer or whatever it is. He, he desires to send you back out to be a bearer, a witness of his gospel in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your circle of friends. He desires to send us as a church out to fulfill our mission of leading people to love and live for Jesus. He says, I am restoring you. Why? So I can put you back out to accomplish my purposes. So here's a final question this morning. Where do you need to trust God today? Is it in this area of physical rest? Are you acting like everything's in your hands that you don't have time to rest? Can you trust God in this area of rest? Or is it in the area of prayer? Maybe you've held on to your emotions. You've, you've actually not brought them out before God. You've not brought them out before your community group or anybody else. You're holding things in and it's killing you from the inside out. Do you need to trust him in that this morning? Bring him, all of it, good and bad. Or is it in the area of his word? You haven't stopped long enough to, to listen to his word. I will tell you this, I know a lot of you are going to be heading out on vacations. <laughs> no, a lot of you are tired. You're ready for a break, but I will tell you this, you can go sit on a beach for three weeks, enjoy all your favorite restaurants, but if you ignore these other areas, if you don't listen to God, if you don't come to Him, if you aren't filled with His Word, you will never have the rest that God has made available to you. These are all gifts of God. He can bring restoration. If you find yourself at that place of despair, consider this message out of the book of Elijah, and then consider these words by Corey ten Boom. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. The only thing that can overcome a deep well of despondency is the even deeper reach of God's grace. Will you trust him? Will you walk with him today?